Greetings to everyone. It's wonderful to be back with you and watch you arrive since I, I don't see the faces. As I said, I often open up the participant list and watch the names because as each name comes that I know well, I have a, a feeling, a presence of each of you, which is a lovely way to begin as people file into the Zendo and take their seat. Let's begin our sitting. Finding a way to be uh, attentive and for things to be simple, some kind of stillness and uprightness, even though we can't see each other, but to offer ourselves fully uh, to these few, next few moments.
and now we'll chant the verse of the robe. I'm going to uh, share it because I'd like to do a brief um, tie-in with some of the other chants that we've been focusing on the other um, through the last few weeks. So just one moment and I'll share my screen. We have the verse of the robe embodying the teachings. So let's say this together three times. Thus is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction, wearing the universal teaching. I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Thus is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction, wearing the universal teaching. I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction, wearing the universal teaching. I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. And you can see in the image that I've put next to it, my teacher Blanche Hartman and her full Okesa, what's reflected on top of it is my bowing in the background with my rakasu. The robe of liberation, this field of benefaction, we wear in these forms and yet it's just the realization of one true nature harmonizing. I wanna give you just a little more information too. If you're interested in having all of the chants that we use, if you go to um, appamata.org and on the home page you'll see that there is uh, on the menu something for study the little rough red circle there and if you click on study you'll open to a, a page which includes study and if you look down the left hand side you'll see checked their Appamata chant book or large print if you prefer. Those are PDFs, uh, which you can download and we'll have all the chants. You can open it and it will begin all the information that, that you need. So that's just a little bit of an introduction for those of you that aren't sure um, about how to get these. So we don't just have to send them out necessarily. In the last few weeks, I've been focusing on some of the chants that we use, partly out of a request and partly because it fit um, our, our themes. And I wanted to not only demonstrate how these chants so clearly express the essence of our teachings and our practice, but also really resonate with what's happening in the contemporary world so that we see that our Zen practice is not just uh, an artifact from Asia or something that you do in a meditation hall, but it's something applicable in all of our lives. We um, focused a few weeks ago <clears throat> on the Han inscription, the things that calls us to practice. Um, and this is what a Han might look like. Uh, this is the one here we have in Hawaii. Uh, and it's what is struck with the mallet that calls the monks to, um, to practice. And we spoke about this um, 
in the past, and we may speak about it again, about the great matter that brings us to our practice, our understanding of impermanence and life passing so quickly, the call to wake up and not to waste the preciousness of our lives. A few weeks ago, we spoke about uh, repentance or confession, the, um, which is, the, in a way, a, a sense of profound acceptance of who we are and an admission of who we are, starting with all of my karma that I now fully avow, and the second chanting is our, that we fully avow, and the third is all that we're immersed in and how all being is vowing and revealing itself all the time. The image, by the way, I came upon um, recently, and it's the chair that Joko Beck sat in in her zendo in Arizona. Uh, Peg and I went to her memorial service, and when we were in the zendo alone, the picture, the empty picture, the picture of her space that she left. We also spoke about the four practice principles recently. The principles through uh, which we walk through the heart of the practice, which we'll chant at the end today, caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding the self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. And I'll come back to this, um, as we go further uh, today. But right now, <clears throat> let's go back to <clears throat> the, the teachings for today. And the thing that I'd like to focus on is the way in which this time uh, during pandemic, the time when our usual ways of connecting, uh, especially in practice, we, we can't go to the Zendo and meet. Uh, we can rarely even sit together. Uh, we can't uh, gather in retreat in exactly the same way and sit together and walk together and eat together and work together. So these circumstances interrupt our conventional patterns of connection and social activity, which are so nourishing to us. So I wanna talk about this being alone and loneliness and solitude and refuge, how all these connect. Some of you are probably aware of the writings and teachings of the late uh, German-American, a Christian existentialist philosopher and theologian, Paul Tillich. He was kind of a towering figure in um, uh, theology, Christian theology, and um, very influential uh, in the 20th century. He said, our language has wisely sensed the two sides of being alone. It has created the word loneliness to express the pain of being alone. And it has created the word solitude to express the glory of being alone. It's 
a very interesting opening of this being alone, the painful aspect of loneliness and what he calls the glory of, of solitude. It's possible that we experience both during this time, depending on our day, our situation, our circumstances, and our ability to connect like we are today. Another uh, wise uh, figure who uh, lived in the 20th century, a wonderful uh, woman, a writer, May Sarton. She was a, a great elder. She said one time, loneliness is the poverty of self. Solitude is the richness of self. And she wasn't speaking uh, in a Buddhist language, of course, or even a spiritual language, but she was talking about richness and poverty and loneliness and solitude. You know, I think what's missing in loneliness is some barrier to bringing oneself fully to the present moment, resting in the present moment fully. There's a poverty, something missing or lacking. And the, the poverty, she uses the word self, a poverty of one's true self, one's uh, fundamental nature, because there's this desire for, for completion through grasping out of the loneliness. Help, help me connect, not feel so lonely. And solitude suggests a container that practice helps us cultivate in which we can tolerate aloneness because this container has been created which can hold everything that arises. This is our practice. But in order to understand this, I think we have to realize how loneliness relates to grief. When we're alone, what's lost? When we're alone in our homes, we can't go out. Maybe we're very much privately alone or maybe just with our children or a spouse. What is lost? And all of us have an answer to that question, but it's the question that links aloneness to loneliness and to suffering. What are we missing? Um, simple presence of another, a human touch, the hope of some joyful and honest connection out in the world, companionship, everyday companionship and play, satisfying shared work, and on and on. And these, are, these can be huge and right now it seems like uh, continuing sense of grief, strands of grief, which inevitably accompany the kinds of losses we're all experiencing to some degree during this time. The writer Thomas Mann said, solitude gives birth to the original in us, to beauty, unfamiliar and perilous. Solitude gives birth to the original in us, to beauty, unfamiliar, and perilous. In Zen, we, we hear sometimes the phrase, um, returning to or expressing our original face. It's uh, kind of an interesting Zen word or, or phrase that suggests that we can return to or express our ground of being, the essence of, of what this life is and who I, who I am, who we are, what what life is, what a person is. 
is our ground of being, the, the origin, the, the unconstructed, the unconditioned. So I don't think, as man says, that solitude gives birth to this because we're never apart from it. Our essence, our Buddha nature is with us all the time. We, in fact, it's not something that is with us. It's our animating life energy. It's what animates and infuses everything with vitality and aliveness. But solitude may give space and encouragement for the expression of our true face, of the original in us. And when we practice and provide that container and express ourselves fully by being called to the great matter as the Han did, by confessing and avowing, this is who I am, accepting ourselves fully, and taking refuge, which we'll speak about later, and practicing deeply through the heart of our practice, embodying those teachings, as it says in the Rogue Chant, all of this is quite beautiful. Man says, this gives birth to the original us, to beauty, unfamiliar and perilous. It's beautiful when we begin to see each other as we really are and offer ourselves to each other honestly as we really are, perfect and whole, with all of our flaws, all of our imperfections and partialities where we don't feel that we're really what we would hope to be. And yet it's beautiful. And this is his next word, unfamiliar. It's all too rare to meet each other in this way. And this is what practice gives us an opportunity to do, to meet each other in our fullness, in the glory of imperfection, not in some sort of elevated perfection, but to see each other truly and to accept each other deeply. It's all unfamiliar. And therefore, the third word he used was perilous. But it's perilous to whom or what? I think it feels perilous because we feel our vulnerability, the actuality of our vulnerability. But that's what practice allows us. A week or two ago, I spoke about um, turning toward each moment and I used the phrase from Pema Chodron's book, The Wisdom of No Escape, when we talked about the four practice principles. In this case, we're focusing on um, turning toward the difficulty of being alone and not fleeing to something unwholesome to get away from the loneliness. How can we shift it to solitude, which has a vibrant possibility within it? And at that point, in that turn, between loneliness and solitude, we find the refuges in our practice. Uh, some of you may know what these are, but first, just the word. You know, to take refuge is usually to go uh, into a place for shelter or protection from danger or trouble. It's so odd that many people now, when we have to stay home, wear a mask, do the things that are protective, isn't is felt as refuge. It's to go into a place for shelter or protection from danger or trouble. And that's, that's really all we're doing. It has a consequence. And so much of the suffering and difficulty is uh, people's inability to tolerate the consequence of, of fleeing danger. As if what one meets in the solitude 
is more troubling or dangerous than a virus that would kill you. It's, a, it's an interesting challenge. You see that what is a refuge to one person is a horrible constriction to another. And what is freedom to other people is dangerous and unsettling. The root to the word refuge in ancient, uh, the, the, the French and also um, ancient English is to fly home, to come home. So how do we learn to practice, to turn to something in these difficult and challenging times with all these questions? Turn towards something in which we can honestly place our faith, something worthy of our faith. We've had such failures of leadership and we get differing information here and there, like what can we trust? And, and my job today isn't to help you sort all that out, of course, but to find a way in our practice to at least come home to this unusual place of, of our true abiding self, which is full of life and clarity and truth and goodness. Because what we do is we normally place our trust in that which isn't worthy of our faith. What do we trust? Our habits, our personal thoughts, our reactive and automatic feeling responses, maybe some strongly held belief or constructed story, our protective defenses, all types of illusion, the list goes on and on. This is what we put our faith in. And how do we know that? Because that's where we turn over and over and over. So when we sit and maybe study the teachings or work out things with the teacher or with each other, with a spiritual friend, like in inquiry, we're really questioning where we're putting our faith and turning it towards something more trustworthy. I remember speaking to, to Blanche, whose picture you saw in the very beginning, about her heart attack that she had at the age I am right now. And she said when she had the heart attack and the ambulance came to collect her, they took her immediately, but she had her mama on her wrist, the beaded um, necklace or bracelet, that's what it looks like. Um, and so as she was in the ambulance and in the emergency room, she simply held her mala and she told me that she said the refuges. I take refuge in Buddha. I take refuge in Dharma. I take refuge in Sangha over and over and over as she was moving through treatment until they took her things away. She was alone in some ways. And she turned it into a time of solitude, full of her longings for being okay and the terror of loss, but not lonely. Because the triple treasure, the three treasures in Buddhism are taking refuge, flying home to Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. We fly home to Buddha, we put our faith and trust in Buddha, not as some old guy in India. There is that figure, but when we say I take refuge in Buddha, it's awakening. I take refuge in my own true nature, which is the same as in that old image, my own true nature and the nature 
of wakefulness all around me. I take refuge, I come home to Dharma, the teachings. Sometimes they're the actual teachings written down or spoken, but it's also the, the nature of how life works, how things actually are in the world. Not the way I think of them, not the way I construct them, not the uh, sort of fake news I tell myself about things, the, kind of, the realities that I construct, but the actual way things are, I can see more clearly. That's called wisdom. I take refuge in Buddha, my true nature, Dharma, the, the way things actually work and are true in the world, the lawful nature of the universe. And three, I take refuge in Sangha, my spiritual friends and the community of practitioners and everything and everyone who supports and helps me, which is eventually the whole world, because we realize we can't actually survive without everything around us holding us up. I'm gonna share my screen again because I want you to see the, the larger way that uh, we, um, we chant the refuges. <clears throat> Sorry about the, the sort of, um, let's see here. I'm not sure why that is there. It's a little awkward sometimes. <clears throat> so the, we clarify our way by taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. But in the three times that we chant it, we also include a relational aspect and a universal aspect. We take refuge in Buddha. We take refuge, not just I. And then there's some additional classical phrases we say before all being, immersing body and mind deeply in the way, awakening true mind. We take refuge in Dharma before all being, entering deeply the merciful ocean of Buddha's way. We take refuge in Sangha before all being, bringing harmony to everyone, free from hindrance. And then third, now all being has completely taken refuge in Buddha. Now all being has completely taken refuge in Dharma. Now all being has completely taken refuge in Sangha. It's my job to take refuge as a practitioner. We realize we can only do that together. And I won't go into all the other lines. That's, that's a whole talk in itself. Before all being, I will do this. But before constructing an individual self, I'll immerse my body and mind deeply in the way and awaken to true mind. We take refuge in Dharma, entering deeply the merciful ocean of Buddha's way. And we take refuge in Sangha, bringing harmony to everyone. And in doing so, refuge is taken through all being. <clears throat> so I think that we should maybe take some time to, to speak about these things, about what it's like to feel our aloneness, our loneliness, how that sometimes turns to solitude and a more generous expression of um, ourselves and our practice, the beauty, the unfamiliar, the perilous, and how when we take refuge, we can turn toward what is uh, quite, um, profoundly um, 
not just comforting, but generous because it's a wise way of turning toward the world and it's a compassionate way of being with ourselves and others during this time. So I hope this hasn't been um, too confusing. I've given, given you a lot, but I just wanted to make that distinction between loneliness and solitude in our aloneness and say that how coming home in the refuges through our practice gives us an opportunity for things to, to turn towards more uh, wakefulness. So if you want to raise your hand, I'd really love to, to meet you and, and please bring as uh, your clear questions or expressions or whatever you'd like that would be uh, be most useful. I hope I haven't lost you there. Hello, Bridget. Hello, Flint. It's good to be with you again. I, uh, I think this is a very good topic for me today because I've, I've spoken of how I've been challenged by the isolation. And I think probably the last time I came and did practice discussion with you was when I said I thought I was falling in love and uh, feeling very vulnerable. And um, as it turned out, um, whether or not I was doing the thing where I was trying to keep myself from feeling isolated or not, I don't know. That was at the very early stages of this, mm -hmm. but that relationship has not evolved and um, is basically ended. But I, I think that um, it makes me aware of how your explanation of turning towards um, your Buddha nature mm -hmm. is, is, is helpful. And I have found myself practicing more self-compassion mm -hmm. But I'm uh, practices. In other words, um, right. Mm -hmm. Mentioned Kristen Neff, and I remember going to hear her speak. So I've been, yeah. But when someone's feeling the resistance to turning to the Buddha nature or connecting, what ideas would you have for turning that turning towards? Well, there there are a couple of ways to think about it. Uh, one has to do with vow, uh, which allows us to turn toward practice, even when we don't want to. <laughs> it's like taking your medicine, you know, or going to the gym or whatever. Sometimes it's a simple behavioral practice because you have some discipline, mm -hmm. even though you don't want to. And you can go stomping and complaining, mm -hmm. which we often do, um, but do it anyway. That's just the sort of the first line. Mm -hmm. But a deeper one is in that turning toward, mm -hmm. turn toward the resistance. Turn toward the one who doesn't want to go. Okay. And if you do that, if you turn toward the voice, the feeling, the body sensation, the, whatever is in you that's saying, I don't want to do this, this doesn't make any difference, I'm tired of, you know, whatever it is. Once you turn toward it in that act, the one who is turning toward isn't the one resisting. Oh, okay. Because you're turning back to mm -hmm. the larger space that can witness and hold. If, if you can do that, mm -hmm. if you can, sometimes we can't, turn toward the one who's resisting mm -hmm. with compassion, like self-compassion, other com with compassion mm -hmm. and care and say, this seems hard for you. Tell me what's going on. As kind as you would be to your dearest friend and see what that part tells you. See what you learn. Because that is the same as avowing. That's confession. Mm -hmm. 
That's turning toward, that's taking refuge. That's following, not following the self-centered dream. That's opening to each moment. That's wrapping yourself in the realm of liberation. Mm-hmm. Just to, to step back and turn toward what's arising instead of trying to get rid of it and do something else. Because that's too, too harsh. And third, okay. if behaviorally, you just can't like get yourself going because it's your, uh, your discipline, self-discipline, and you attempt to turn toward, but it's too fraught. It's too tangled and twisted. And sometimes we have to reach out like this to someone and say, help me. I need a hand up. I, I can't do this alone. I can't do this. So then someone can say, well, I'm, I'm right here. Uh, and that person doesn't have to know the answer, but to, just to be present and say, you're not alone. And we'll, we'll work it out. We'll figure out a way. And I totally understand. So sometimes it's a simple behavioral change. Sometimes you can turn towards with compassion and care, those parts that are difficult. And sometimes we need help from the outside. So those are three uh, practice turns you could take. All right. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. It's a great question. I'm sure that that's useful for others too. Well, thanks. Hello, Joan. You're muted. So. Hello. Oh, that story about Blanche doing the refuges as she went to the hospital touched me deeply and really broke me open. And uh, I realized that when I'm in that same situation, I usually do meta. Mm -hmm. And I see a real parallel with meta and how you described loneliness. It's Mm -hmm. kind of focusing on the pain and what Blanche was doing was focusing on the richness of Mm -hmm. what she had, what she had with the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she really just kept coming home as she may be losing her body. She's literally being driven away from home to this knows what. And later she, in some of her Dharma talks in the personal time we talked, she said after she survived, she said, I felt like, and you may feel the same thing, I don't know, it's the reason I'm bringing it up, said, I feel like I had a a second chance at life. I could have died. And then I really, she said, I really had to pay attention to how I was gonna use my life. Yes, I had that very same conversation with myself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the um, a loving kindness practice or metta practice, which you mentioned, is, is a lovely practice. Um, and it can, um, you can offer, like I was talking to Bridget, you can offer metta to some parts of you who are stuck or having trouble, and that's quite useful. And the way that we offer metta, as you know, about um, offering our best aspiration for a body that is relaxed and a mind that's open and a heart, you know, that's balanced and um, wakefulness is, is, are the principles of how we rest in our practice, an embodied practice where we have an open heart and a balanced mind, wakefulness. Often metta can devolve, and this is my own personal perspective, <laughs> I know, can devolve into like an affirmation to have what you want. 
It can be a series of, it can be, it can shift almost like towards the self-centered dream. May I be happy. May I have what I want. Uh, and I think it's not that those things aren't wonderful, but I don't think it's the essence of the practice in a way. And I think that's some of what you might've been talking about. Yes. Yeah, it is. I just wanted to make that clarification for folks. Uh, and your beautiful clarification of the richness and the solitude of that moment where she turned it, uh, I've always uh, remembered it. it was striking to me. Mm-hmm. And I only realized today that uh, I'm the exact age she was when she had that heart attack. <laughs> um, it, not that that matters, but there's a sort of resonance with it. And with our overlaid pictures, I could feel her, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for your comments. It's beautiful. Hi, Flint. Hi, Eileen. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, thank I love you. The, I would love the way when, as soon as you come on, you take this breath, like, oh, it looks so nice to be here. <laughs> I read it positively. I hope it is. But. It is. It is. Um, thank you for bringing up this uh, matter of uh, alone with the, the possibility of loneliness and solitude. Uh, in this time, occasionally there's some loneliness, but largely I'm enjoying a great deal of solitude. And in the solitude, what I am observing is uh, I'm, I'm finding that I am hearing the voices of my parts more clearly, the, mm-hmm. the more subtle, yes. subtle voices. Uh, because, you know, the solitude implies, I mean, I'm really, en- really enjoying doing new things, coming closer to just things in the home, closer to, I think, my true being that just never have had a chance to engage in. And I can be fully involved in them, but I'm finding that I'm hearing a complaining, you know, full of really enjoying myself and hearing this complaining or critical voice, very small, but there quite a bit. And and, uh, it has interested me that even when I'm having a full-blown, really wonderful time, there's this. And, and I'm willing to stop and look, but it makes me wonder, I mean, it makes me think about, I've probably been a pretty angry person in part for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder if I'm always going to be an angry person in part and, and that maybe that's just the way it is, that that part is vocal, you know, that it, uh, uh, but, and this kind of rides on what Bridget was saying a little bit, but, yeah, yeah. but what, what were you going to say just now? Well, there were, there were two things. When I first began my Hakomi training with Ron Kurtz, when he was still alive, he was a, a master therapist, but he was also trained as a, a scientist and an engineer. And he said, what we do in mindfulness and the kind of practices that, that we do is to, we're shifting the signal to noise ratio. <laughs> we're turning down the noise of the system mm-hmm. and we pick up more subtle signals as a result mm-hmm. that we couldn't hear before because it was too much background activity and noise. And we get quiet in the place of solitude and go into longer. Then suddenly these things come forward, which were always there. Just what you're saying so that we can turn toward them as I was just speaking about 
to find their purpose, their meaning, what they think their job is, what their worries are, so that we provide this bodhisattva turn inside, the self-compassion turn, um, rather than discovering something we didn't realize was there, judging it, and deciding whether it should stay or go. That's the ordinary way, and that's the way of suffering and duality. But instead, to meet fully and with a wholesome, uh, in a wholesome way, with an open heart and uh, a clear mind, and saying, "Oh, here it is." We know that if you're going to be a human being for the rest of your life, <laughs> which is likely, <laughs> then you're going to have moments of anger, and you'll have moments of sadness, and great joy, and fear, uh, and everything. You you'll get the whole thing. Um, but the more we practice the more we have a capacity to have that center available, even as all the other does arise and pass away. Uh, some of us have this hope that we'll get to that center and nothing else will happen. Mm. But you know this. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, it, it strikes me that the, the voice is so irrational, but it is because it's anger. I mean, that, that's, that, that is what it is. And, uh, and I think it's okay. I was just, I just, I'm just, I just wondered about it. Just thought, hmm. learn to be friends with it, so you can find out what it's, what it's mad about. Any part of you that has some extreme or persistent feeling state that keeps there's, if it is, if it's um, extreme or persistent, it suggests it's not satisfied. What would satisfy it? Yeah. I think there may yeah. be something for me to let go of. But I have to figure out what that is. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I did want to say, just because it came up in the way you were speaking about this, uh, not, not what you were saying, but I, I don't want people also to take what I'm saying to suggest that loneliness is a problem and solitude is of higher quality. Of course, we're going to feel lonely. That's how we meet the loneliness. Can we feel some the richness of solitude as a generative thing, maybe, maybe not. We're going to have to turn toward our griefs and our reactivity, all the things we're talking about. All of you are expressing it beautifully now. This is how we change. This is how we move so that we're not stuck someplace. It's the freedom to move. It's the freedom for life to move fully is what we're, we're hoping to offer in our practice, not to go from some bad place to some good place. So thank you for that. Thank you, as always. as always. Thank you. Judy. Hi. Oh, it's so great to see you. It's been I'm a good. long time. I know. I know. Oh, it's great to see you. I, my sigh is, um, if I, whenever I put my hand up, I just feel huge anxiety because I know there's loads of people watching. <laughs> It's like, here you go, you're on TV now. <laughs> oh, I feel my heart going. Oh, oh. But um, I, I, look, at, look at me. Yes, I need to know <laughs> you. Um, yeah, I've made you bigger now. That's better. <laughs> it's so great to see you and hear you. And, and so you're at home in Sheffield? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I, and I think I was inspired to put my hand up because... Um, I wanted to meet the sort of resistance and um, step up really 
as a way to encourage myself um, in my practice. Mm -hmm. And I know whenever I do inquiry with you, I feel like it's always the same question in a way. You know, whenever I think, what do I want to ask? I think, I'm sure I've asked this before. but <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's kind of true, isn't it? But yeah. it's, that's, it's that way with everyone. So. Yeah. <laughs> so it's something about... Um, so because I'm menopausal, at night I can wake up with the horrors, with like a real strong anxiety, you know, and, and I do think that, you know, practice as a tool has helped me to work with that in the sense that I can, um, I can tell myself that though the thoughts that I'm having are, are just anxious thoughts that they're not, you know, they're not something to take too much, pay too much attention to. And so I can kind of soothe myself and go back to sleep. But it feels like a, a, a tool, like a, not a turning away, but a, a sort of shutting it off sort of thing. And, right. and um, what I've also been doing a lot of in the last year or two is um, challenging my addiction to the news and, not not taking it in so uh just just avoiding it basically mm -hmm. so it's something about and we've been talking about this in the sangha a bit because somebody talked about how watching the news was turning towards and i said no i don't think it is necessarily that watching the news is turning towards because the news is kind of you know whatever they want you to see or hear mm -hmm. but at the same time, when I avoid it, it it sometimes feels like just a way of trying to avoid my anxiety and bury my head in the sand. It's you know? not. It's not whether you watch or whether you don't watch. Yeah. It's who watches and who turns away. Okay. Because you can watch through you know i'll make it sort of a little more dramatic but if you watch with buddha's eye and hear with buddha's ears then there's a discernment and a wisdom and a clarity that is there something here that needs attention there's mm. intimacy with the moment what response is required uh i'm noticing am i getting overwhelmed so that's important and if you turn away it might be wholesome I've had enough, I feel overwhelmed, my body, I can tell. Uh -huh. Or is it a turning way of like, you know, screw that, you know, is it angry or anguish and despair? Yeah. So it's yeah. who's turning away and who's watching. It isn't just the watching or the turning. Does that make sense? Yeah, kind of. I think I need to practice it to really understand what you're saying. Yeah, you have to pay attention to what's actually happening that mm -hmm. I want to grab onto what's watching, what's happening that I want to pull away, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and noticing what parts are coming up, basically. And, in, yeah. and I also want to make a comment about the night terror, because mm -hmm. you can feel there's something not quite on track about it. Yeah. It's useful from a cognitive point of view, it's quite useful to say this isn't reality. Yes. But it's not enough. Like when your kids were little, and they scurried to your bed in the middle of the night with a terror. Do you, do you say, oh, go back to your bed, it's not real? <laughs> it wouldn't work very well, would it? <laughs> I know it wouldn't with Charlie. No. No. <laughs> so what would you do? 
I'd soothe them. I'd reassure them. Yeah. And say, it's okay to stay here for a while until you can. So the same thing with those parts of you. Yes. Uh, because if you don't take it seriously, they can't be soothed. Yes. And so there's yeah. some way this, uh, dismissing it is not taking it seriously. So that's like when I was just talking about someone it's not satisfied. Yes, that makes sense. And, you know, I often think to myself, you know, is the anxiety due to my time in life, the extra anxiety, or is it just the same response to the world we're living in at the moment, you know? <laughs> oh, that's, that's exactly back to who's watching because a, an outrage to what's happening might be a wise response. Yeah. That, with racism, with a lot of the things that are happening, those are actually wise responses. Okay. Now, how that's acted out and what one does with that fire yeah. is important. Yes. And is it destructive or is it constructive? Is it uh, potent in a way that's gonna generate something to be useful or is it just simply uh, gonna be violent or cause more suffering? It's, it's a complicated thing. Yeah. But remember, it's not just the action, it's who's doing the action. Yeah. That's really helpful. Good. And how are you feeling in your body now? Uh, the sort of fast heartbeat has calmed down a bit because I've been focusing on you and um, that's really, really helped. In fact, it was worse when I was waiting. Oh, I know that's the worst part, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because that's when you're starting to generate the stories about how bad it's going to be. You know? <laughs> yeah. The, the vulnerability, the exposure that I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And yet I'm sure that you must I know you well enough to know that there's a, a hunger for connection and absolutely. Yeah. And why I felt so thrilled when I saw you because it's been a while, like I do with I all know. of you. I know. I miss you so much. I've so missed your visit this year. Yeah, it's hard. So. And hard. So thank you for taking the risk for coming on. It's really good. And your question is wonderful because it's appropriate for so many. Mm. So give my love to others there and your family too. Thanks, Flynn. You're welcome. Bye. There okay. you go. Hi. Um, I I didn't have my mouse, and I'm not. I can't use the little thing on the pad. It's it's hard. Anyway, hi. Um, so two things. Um, one, I was um, this weekend um, meditating, and I was in a pretty big turmoil over someone in a relationship with me. And um, so kind of flooded with emotion. Mm -hmm. And I, I had a choice. Do I try and, you know, you know, breathe and, and work through it knowing? Um, and I will have to say that um, a lot of what, what the, the situation was triggering was old, old stuff that didn't, right. didn't really have to do with today in the current situation. Sure. So I was aware of all of that, too. Um, and I was thinking about, I think it was El Elaine who was saying these anger parts were coming up. I think the pandemic is, you know, it's really, you know, it's not distract. We don't have the opportunity to distract ourselves from some of these things. So there it was, this thing that um, obviously had vestiges in me that I, you know, had to deal with. So what my choice was to stick with it. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, I calmed down, I got upset again, you know, so it went back and forth. Um, and, you know, that's what I did. So it's, it's a bit of a question 
um, about that. I'm sure there's no right way. Um, what, but what's, the, what's the question in it? The, well, the question is, is it better to, you know, like go and have a good cry and then come back or, you know, um, or to, you know, to try and work with it and stay with it and go in and out of the concentration and that. Well, that's Rosemary, it's always, it's always an experiment. Uh, what you're saying is you had a lot of insight. That's not difficult. That's kind of what you're about. Uh, so you didn't have to work with that, but you could feel yourself buffeted between these different ways of responding. Try them out. As long as you're aware, as long as awareness is aware, then you can see, oh, this is taking me in a direction that's not working. You know, sometimes someone will say, I think I should do, you know, this thing. And I say, okay, do it wholeheartedly. And then come tell me how it goes. Find out. Because that's how practice becomes yours. And that's how we begin to have a deeper confidence is when we have practiced and found our way and we get a wholesome response, then there's something in us that can say, okay, this, this, this is true. Not because Flint said it or I read it in a book or something else, because I know in my life this is true. And that was the Buddhist teaching. He said, don't believe what I'm saying. Do it and yeah. find out if it's yours. Really, really important. Thank you. I, I, that was Saturday. Sunday, I was able to figure out what I wanted to do about the situation that was troubling me, which I did, and I felt much better. Mm -hmm. um, today, I just wanted to share that, you know, I've had trouble um, with too many projects and doing too many things. And so my vacation is next week. And I said, well, I want, I would like my garden to be completed this week so that I can relax in it next week. Well, I was putting all this pressure on myself to get all of this done. And this morning was going to be get to the plant store and a whole list. And I stopped myself and realized, well, it's, you could go tomorrow. You don't really have to go today. So I didn't go. And I had the most fantastic morning. I just I found, um, I hadn't done journaling yet, so I found a spot to sit um, on the floor between the um, apartment and the terrace. So I'm sitting like at the terrace door there, but on the floor, which was so cool. There was a wonderful breeze and I was on the level with the flowers. So it was like a complete um, feeling of relaxation. It was just a completely different morning than I had planned, and I was so happy about it. And what you're saying is you experimented. Instead yeah. of going with your rigid thought about it has to be this way, you did an experiment, and then you found where freedom was. So thanks for that. Thank you. Yeah. I see that we've come to the end of our time, um, so it'll be time to sign off. So let's uh, together um, say the four practice principles, and then we'll have just a few more uh, words here. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, 
exactly the dream, each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way, caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding the self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream, each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity. Thanks for people coming forward so wholeheartedly. And I look forward to seeing you next week as well. I wanted to remind everyone that Appamata's programs and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support makes a huge difference to Appamata. There's a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org slash contribute. It's a, it's a pull down menu all the way to the right. So see you next week.